I'm Jenna. And I'm Allie Dale. And this is Farming the Future, a Purdue Ag Week podcast. Our guest this week is Dr. Erica Slinker, who is a research scientist study manager for Elanco Animal Health. She's here with us this week to educate us on research and development, as well as its impact on agriculture. Hello, Dr. Slinker. If you wouldn't mind, just go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do. I'm sure. Thank you. My name is Erica Slinker, and I am a research scientist at Alanco Animal Health. My training is in animal science. I received an animal science degree from Purdue University. Um, I then went on and got a master's in animal breeding and genetics at Iowa State. Um, and then I moved on and got a PhD in immunogenetics um, at Texas A&M. In all of my graduate work, I spent my time um, learning to evaluate response to vaccination and other genetic influences that affect um, response to vaccination, as well as bovine respiratory disease, um, specifically focusing on bovine viral diarrhea virus, um, or BVD. Um, and it's one of the most common respiratory pathogens that affect feedlot cattle. Um, since then, I have been with Alanco Animal Health for the last six years. I started my career predominantly on the food animal side, um, vaccine development, and have um, moved and grown into working on pet health um, vaccination as well. Um, I have a production animal background, grew up on a cattle and swine um, production farm, um, and then that's where my passion and love to um, improve lives, the quality of lives of animals, as well as producers um, came from. Yeah. And so could you maybe tell us a little bit about um, how research, how important research is in terms of agriculture and its impacts? Uh, absolutely. So, so I think first and foremost, we're always looking at the welfare of the animal and we want to improve the welfare and the lives of these animals um, when they're in the production setting or as a pet at home. Um, so one of the things that we're always looking to do is ways to prevent disease. Um, and that's really where the vaccines come into play. Um, so there's a number of vaccines currently on the market, but as, as we've seen with the COVID, um, diseases change over time and there are risks associated with that. And that's why research is constantly important. We want to be developing and looking forward into those new pathogens, what's, what's next um, and how can we prevent it become, before it becomes an outbreak. Um, we actually saw that with PED and pigs a number of years ago, um, and we're seeing it with avian influenza we have flu vaccines, but are they meeting the needs of the producers? And so constant research, research to constantly improve that market is critical. Um, we want to be ahead of the diseases doing our surveillance work, um, but research is what allows us to have products ready to meet customers' needs, as well as being ahead of it such that we have the the tools in place so that we can quickly move when there is a potential um, risk that comes with various diseases. Uh, so say you have, we have an outbreak of a specific disease. I'm really curious. So what's the process or what's the method of attack when it comes to trying to develop a quick vaccine? So this is not my area of expertise, but one of the first things that you're going to do is do some surveillance. We have to understand what that pathogen is. Is it a virus? Is it enveloped? Is it single, double, 
stranded, um, what family does it fall into? So that's the first thing we're gonna do is probably genotype it as well. So we have a lot of um, tools now in the genetics space that allows us to evaluate what that pathogen is from a genotype perspective. So once we understand that sequence, we can compare it to other similar pathogens. Um, you'll see that's what happened with COVID. It was actually a cousin in uh, some respects to SARS and MERS, which were um, outbreaks in Asia. Um, so when we when we do that, we have an opportunity to, to start by genotyping it. That's one option. Um, another option is to actually isolate a field strain and bring it into a laboratory and try to grow it up. So that comes with a number of complications. Often when these pathogens take hold in the environment, um, they're not always able to be well-defined within the laboratory. Um, but that's, that's one way we would start is we would try to culture it in the laboratory. That would also allow us to either genotype it, sequence it and understand what the genetic makeup of it is. Um, additionally, that allows us to start comparing it to other pathogens, similar pathogens in the laboratory. Um, so that's really where we would start. And then from there, we would start scaling up. We could either attenuate it. So it depends on if you're wanting to do a modified live vaccine, a killed vaccine, um, the type of product you're going after. Um, so usually we take it and we want to identify the variants that are um, stimulating the immune response. And so that's one way that we would use the genetic components. There are other mechanisms out there, other um, assays available to detect those, but the genetics piece is the one that I'm most familiar with. So we would identify a genomic region in it that's conserved. Um, but would also allow us to stimulate the immune response from that. Um, so it depends on the type of pathogen. If it's a quick and dirty, are we going after a single variant? But as you saw with COVID, as it changed, we wanted a vaccine that was going to allow us to attack multiple strains. And that's often the, the case in, in the livestock and pet health space is the pathogen has multiple strains associated with it. And so we want something that's going to produce a broad immune response. And that's why we want to find those conserved regions within the genome that allow us to stimulate the immune response to that. And then from there, you would go into formulations. And I'm not a formulation expert, so I can't really speak to that. Um, but there are different ways, different components that you use to then develop that vaccine. Um, and really it's, there is some quick, but it's really a three to seven year process from identifying a pathogen, <clears throat> going through all of the steps in order to get it, get it to licensure. Yeah. And I guess that's exactly the reason why like researching and trying to get, you know, ahead of the curve is so important. And so yeah. just out of my own curiosity, it is the research that you do or that, or at least that you've been involved in, does that have implications beyond like animals or beyond pets, or is it kind of specific to certain animals, if that makes sense? Uh, absolutely. So the, the research that I personally have been involved in is going to be more limited to um, animals. That being said, the type of research that I'm doing is certainly applicable to humans and, and beyond. So, you know, a lot of these models and diseases, while maybe not identical or zoonotic, um, 
they do span into the human space. Um, so for instance, a lot of the respiratory diseases that we're working with and, and bovine is the one that I'm most familiar with, but bovine um, respiratory syncytia virus is the primary um, hospitalizer of children from one to three, but yet we don't have a human vaccine for it. So is that a space where we could utilize what we know in the, in the animal space and move it into, into human medicine? Um, part of that is developing models and finding ways to test it. Um, but yes, there, there's a lot of work that can be overlapped. Um, I just personally haven't done any of mm -hmm. it, but the models, the science is going to be similar um, and to move from animals into humans. But I would say really, we start a lot of it in animals um, as kind of a starting point. So based off everything you've said so far, it's a very long and very tedious process. It sounds like from going from identifying a pathogen to coming up with a solution. So there must be some big setbacks. What is the biggest challenge that you've faced in research so far? So in the type of research that I'm doing, probably the biggest setback that I encounter are biological models. So in order to prove that you have an efficacious vaccine, what you are doing is you have to create the disease to show that your model, that your vaccine can prevent it. Mm -hmm. So that, that becomes a very big challenge in trying to recreate the disease that you see in animals. And so because these are biological models, biological, you know, the, the animal itself, how the animal responds um, is very different. That, that's probably the biggest setback is getting a model that is really repeatable, that tells the story. Um, there's a fine line between having a model that, that's too robust but you also want to show that you have a model that sufficiently supports the disease and mimics the disease as seen in the environment. Yeah, there's always a fine line because um, I have done research and development myself. I'm going into research and development once I graduate, but you, it, it's, it's hard, but you don't want to like create your own results, you know, or to like verify, you know, what you think to be true. And so it definitely it can be complicated and uh, when you get into the weeds of it. And so what's one major topic in research that you see coming kind of in your field that really excites you or that you look forward to? So I think what we're going to start seeing are treatments for animals that are individualized. They're based on their genetic makeup. So we're starting to see that in humans. We know that there are certain cancer treatments that work better if you have a MHC haplotype X. Um, and there's other treatments that we know if you have gene Y aren't going to work. We know that with breast cancer treatments, we can haplotype, we can look at the genetic makeup of the type of breast cancer that you have and create a treatment specific to it. I think particularly in the pet health space, we're going to start seeing that. I think we're going to be able to start developing treatments that are specific to that animal and what that animal comes with. Um, we're going to genotype, we're going to be able to look at the, the, what we call a SNP profile, but these genetic variants that are slightly different between animals and create a treatment plan that is individualized for that animal to improve the welfare and the life of that animal. 
that is actually crazy because you think about like 10, 20 years ago, how it took so long to do any genetic sequencing <laughs> at all. And now we're like, like sequencing our pets and trying to figure out like how to make them healthier. But that's actually really cool, um, especially because, you know, everyone loves their animals and they want them to have the healthiest life, whether that's your pets or, you know, your animals that you have on the farm. So that's actually a really cool possibility for the future. So it kind of sounds like this might be directed towards like pet type animals, or if you just have like one or two animals in the house, but is this something that could be efficiently implemented into say a livestock operation? Absolutely. Um, So there are certain diseases and PERS is one where we know that there are um, genetic differences between animals that make them more likely predisposed to having PERS. And so, yeah, so that would be one where we may have vaccines that are more targeted to it. Um, There are, we're trying to understand that that was part of my research in graduate school was understanding for the bovine respiratory complex diseases. Are there um, genetic differences between animals that make them more susceptible, more likely to um, come down with bovine respiratory disease complex? And if so, I think that does allow us to change our treatments. The other thing I think it allows us to do is um, harmonize and maybe further develop our preventative um, plans for livestock. Um, I think we'll start to see ways that we can differentiate. Now, I don't think you're going to see it on an individual animal basis, more on a um, sire basis, a herd basis, a region basis, um, perhaps animals moving into feedlots that come from a particular region in the U.S., we know that we need to manage them slightly differently. Um, And whether that's their vaccination program, whether that's how we're treating it when we see the disease, um, maybe even how we source those animals going into various feedlots. Um, So I I do think we will start to see it. We're not going to see it in that individual individual animal medicine space, but more so on a herd or a region basis, I think that there's opportunity there. And it's nice also to know, which that's just really cool that you can do that, but it's also nice to know that like companies care about these types of things, that they care about animal welfare, because I know sometimes that can be kind of like a a hot button topic, but um, it's encouraging to know that, you know, this is like research that could be done and people want to do. Um, and is there anything that, like on that topic, is there anything that you wish people knew about maybe the research that you do or that anim- about animal research in general? Yeah, I think actually you, you just touched on it and that's the welfare of the animals. So while we are utilizing animals in science to provide benefits for the greater population of animals, um, I, first and foremost, that animal welfare is, is our first concern. We want every animal to be well taken care of. We want every animal to be as comfortable as possible. And in all of the work that we do, we are always trying to find earlier humane endpoints. How can we uh, how can we look at a disease and stop that disease? Identify that it's present and stop it before an animal endures any additional pain and suffering. Everything we do is always looking to minimize pain and suffering. And so I just, I think that's a message that um, 
isn't often present. Um, as well as when we are utilizing animals, we're always trying to minimize the number of animals that it takes to do this. But remember that utilizing these few is an opportunity to save many. And so I think that's something else. Um, unfortunately, we do have to utilize animals um, to develop these products, but we're always doing it in the most humane um, way possible and always looking for other sources. You know, if there's a way to minimize, do things in a cell-based um, environment before we move into an animal, we're, we're doing as much of that as possible. Um, and just really the welfare of the animal is our primary concern. So do you think it's possible that in the future we could move towards using methods that don't involve animals? Obviously, it, it's a very far off idea and a method of the future, but do you think it's plausible? I think that we'll continue to move more and more of it into cell-based and um, artificially created environments. I do think that there's something to be said for the host animal. Um, as much as we wanna minimize the amount that we're putting into animals, we also need to ensure that these products are safe and are efficacious. And one of the things that I think we often forget in these cell environments is that you take and isolate a single piece. Whereas when you're putting this into an animal, it's a very complex environment. And while something works beautifully in cell culture, that's a very perfect environment, a very controlled environment, and that's not reality. And so while I think we will continue to maximize those opportunities in cell-based, in um, synthetic environments as much as we can, we have to create that model for the animal, which is a very complex environment with a lot of moving parts, a lot of variation. And that variation is critical to ensuring that you have a product that's really efficacious and going to work across across many animal types. Yeah, and I think that's something that people, I don't know if you're not in this area, you might forget that if you don't test it out in whatever, you know, animal or whatever before it goes out you can't really ensure that you know things work um but even like whether it's you know animal vaccines human vaccines anything like that uh, and so i think that's an important thing to you know always keep in mind so is there anything major that you've learned in your time and research that you think that the general public should know or understand i know we i know we touched on the um, animal treatment and that sort of thing but is there anything about the processes or the um, understanding of how it's implemented that you think people should know about? Um, I think one of the things that is often misunderstood about research is that it's data-driven. And so as we get new technologies, as we um, identify um, new methods, those data points change. And so that's why you see a change in recommendations. Mm -hmm. I think so often people will say, oh, well, we just flip a coin today. And, and it's not that. We're, we're data driven. So when we used to be working off of a simplistic assay, a very simplistic method, and now we're adding a genetic component and we're adding the ability to sequence and to screen, um, we've got much more detail-oriented ways to identify um, at a much more micro, micro level 
now we're changing that data set. And so a recommendation that may have been made 20 years ago wasn't wrong. It's that we have additional data to support a change in that recommendation. And so I think that's something that I think people need to understand from a research perspective is that it's not it's not an opinion. We're we're data driven. And so those those recommendations are changing based on new data, bigger data sets and new technologies that allow us to give you a better recommendation today. But that recommendation that was available 20 years ago wasn't wrong. I think that's a huge, huge, huge point, especially like when you think about newer technologies and advancements that you probably want your recommendations to change because we are not living in the same world we were in 20 years ago. And so I think if you really think about it, it's it's good that recommendations are being updated and changing. I completely agree. That's actually some amazing insight to get from that. I know that even personally being raised in agriculture, I, there's so much about research that I don't understand. And it's nice to know that there, there are some things that everybody can learn from this. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't have anything else to add, Dr. Slinker, I really appreciate your time today. And it's been an amazing opportunity to get to talk to you and everything we've learned today. So I just want to thank you again for coming on with us. Thank you. Thank you for the time and the opportunity. And um, I hope that others take an opportunity to dive into research, but also understanding the opportunities that are available through animal science and animal research. Thanks again, Dr. Slinker. Tune in next Friday for a new episode of Farming the Future by Purdue Ag Week.